to actually fulfill it. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, today we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in chapter 6. And one of the themes of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' probably most famous teaching, is this word of righteousness. And righteousness to us is not a word we use every day. It's kind of weird, maybe you'd say. Um, people, some uh, people use the word righteous as a term of like slang, and they mean something totally different than what Jesus is talking about here in the Gospel of Matthew. But this idea of righteousness is this big theme throughout his, his, his sermon. And this word refers to being rightly related to God, to others, to yourself, and to the earth. And it always starts, first and foremost, with being rightly related to God. And then it begins to bleed out into these other areas. And so part of what Matthew chapter 5 has been is teaching us what righteousness looks like. When you come into contact with Jesus, when you embrace him and his message, this is what it begins to look like. So that's what chapter 5 begins to show you. But chapter 6 starts to teach us how we go about it. How we go about it is different. So you could say chapter 5 is like the what, but now we're talking about the how. See, Jesus isn't simply concerned with what you do. He's also concerned with how you do it. Hence, verse 1 of chapter 6, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And to help us see this, Jesus gives us three illustrations in chapter 6, following this statement. You could say this statement is almost like a thesis statement. It's like a big idea, and then he's going to begin to illustrate them through three different situations. And they all begin in the same way and are structured really similarly. And so the first one is when you give. You see that in verse 2. And he outlines it. When you pray, that's in verse 5. And then when you fast. What's interesting is that all three of these examples touch on a facet of righteousness. With giving or charity being rightly related to others, prayer being rightly related to God, and fasting being rightly related to oneself. Now, we're only going to look at the first one today, when you give. But this idea that grounds it, that Jesus is fleshing out, comes from verse 1. Watch out not to practice your righteousness to be seen by others. There's no reward from your Heavenly Father in that. And then he's going to give us these examples. And what he does is he'll highlight first the negative way in each example, what's not the way of Jesus, and then he begins to outline what is the way of Jesus, what this looks like, how you do this. Jesus, in each of these passages, is reordering our motivations and our perspectives so that we're motivated by our Father in heaven and not the praise of others. Now, my boys, I have two boys, Isaiah and Evan, Isaiah is six, Evan is three, and they're in this beautiful stage where they want me to pay attention to them a lot. They want me to see the things they're creating and building. Each day, it feels like I'll come home, and they will be like, Daddy, come and see what I made. Come and see what I built. Isaiah's really into Lego, and so he wants me to see these different things he's created. And right now, what's cool is they actually think I'm important. They want me to see it. They want me to acknowledge them, to affirm them. They want me to see the new shirts that their grandparents buy them, that they're putting on. Daddy, come and see what grandma got me. Right? That's who they are. And you and I are not that much more different than them, though we're adults. It's just that the way we express this is more subtle, usually. 
It's a little, it's a little bit different. It's more nuanced, but we still have this unspoken but equally deep desire to be seen, to be noticed, to be affirmed. See, God created us. We were made for life with God. God sees and desires humanity to actually notice him, to see what he has created, to see what he's doing in this world, to join him in it. And God created us in his image with the capacity to see and to be seen, to notice and be noticed by God and to even bring him joy. And at our healthiest, at our best, we want to recognize him and to know that he indeed notices all that we do in response to us. This is faith. But in our fallen nature, this gets twisted so that we seek to be praised, noticed, honored, but we do it in such a way that this places God from having the primary place of motivation and instead elevate others, other people's words and attention it to, uh, in our lives. And this isn't that other people's affirmation, their attention is a negative thing. It's not. It's just Jesus wants to reorder the priority place we're putting it in our lives. Now, some of us seek this out more than others. And some of us do it in ways that are really noticeable. And others do it in ways that are really subtle. But we all have this longing to be acknowledged, to be seen, to be affirmed, at least in our good moments. And so that's what he's getting at here in this illustration. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. I, truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. Now, Jesus is not against public good deeds, doing good in front of others. He's not against that. All right, if you help someone in need and, and you do it in public, you're not losing your reward in heaven. That's not what he is saying at all. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, if you just flip your page, probably like two pages in your Bible, you'll see Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We know that Jesus praises the widow who gave all that she had. And for him to do that, she would have had to have done it in a public place, in a public setting. So he's not saying don't do good in public. He's not saying don't give in public. He is warning us about the temptation to use the publicity of our deeds as a way to gain approval from our community. Why? Why does he take issue with that since you're still doing something good? Why would he take issue with this other mode of being at work here? It's because it makes the praise of people the ultimate goal. Ra uh, the ultimate goal, rather than caring for people in need and pleasing your Father in heaven. Giving to be motivated by God's care for others, which becomes our own care for others, for the needy. See, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God ordered his people, commanded his people to care for the poor in more than one way. Let me give you two examples. One is in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of the field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. 
The second example, it comes from Deuteronomy 15, verse 1, which reads, At the very end of this, every seven years, you must cancel debts. And this is how it is to be done. Every credit, creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. And if you read on into verse 7, it will say, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land of the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Both of these, you can see these different ways that God actually cares about the poor among his people, and he wants his people to demonstrate that same type of heart. Not a heart that is hard towards people, not a hand that's going to be tight-fisted to the requests for help. And this is why the prophets Isaiah and Micah, they confronted Israel's leaders because of their lack of uh, pursuing justice for the poor. Caring for those in need matters, but Jesus doesn't want us to turn that into an opportunity to make sure that people see you're doing good because that's not what it's about. You're misplacing the priority. Your motivations are all wrong. So Jesus takes issue with giving that is motivated by your vanity, the need to be seen in a good light. And he takes issue with giving motivated by shame. This is fear. When you give because you're afraid that if, uh, if you don't, people will think you're cheap or greedy or poor. And that makes you feel worthless. There's a sense of shame there. You're not worthless. You're valuable and important, and your life matters to him. And giving does not change that. But Jesus also takes giving, uh, issue with giving motivated by the belief that God gives you more when you give. When you have this kind of belief, oh, I'm going to give, so God's going to bless me with more. He's going to give me more. I, if I'm generous, he'll bless my business. He'll bless me in this other sphere of my life. It doesn't work like that. I have, and I'm sure a number of you have, experienced God's blessing when you've been generous and other times when you've failed. He's gracious. His grace is not dependent on how good or not good you are. His grace is unmerited favor, and it's not. It's getting what you don't deserve. Thank Jesus for that. It's not dependent on us. Giving do, in order to look good, to avoid looking bad, in order to receive more, all of these contain the same issue at the root, that the motivation is off, that the motivation is not a concern for those who are in need. It's not a concern for pleasing God. It's concerned with yourself and how others will see you. And see, this longing that every human being has within us to be seen, to be affirmed, to be acknowledged, it's getting twisted so that it's no longer uh, met by God's approval, but by others. And Jesus says that there's a surprising result that happens if you choose to live this way. There's two things I think he highlights. The first is that Jesus says there's actually still a reward if you give, but your motivations are all twisted. There's still a reward for you. He doesn't say you get nothing. Although giving in order to be praised by others is not what Jesus says is his way. It's not how people in his kingdom begin to live. There's still a reward. It's just a limited reward. You get the praise of others. It's not nothing. 
you get something. You get the praise of others. It's just, it's not the best reward you can receive. This reward, as far as Jesus is concerned, is small. It's petty. If you give and do good so that others see you doing it and praise you, you'll get a reward. It's that. It's praise. It's just he doesn't want his people to aim for that reward. That's way too low. As far as Jesus is concerned, if that's what you aim for and that's what you get, you've settled. You're settling if you choose to live in this way. And this is actually really hard if we're honest with ourselves because it's a really attractive reward. And there's a part of us that is hardwired to actually get like positive affirmation, this, this reinforced kind of behavior. And social media giants, they've played on this desire to be seen and to be liked. The notifications that you and I get, the little red circle with the number of emails or people commenting on this picture, on this video, or whatever it is, the pings that you get when your phone goes off, all of these are designed with human psychology in mind. Something happens in our brain when we receive notifications. Dopamine is an organic chemical that is made in our brains. It's known as the feel-good hormone. It gives you a sense of pleasure and gives you the motivation to do something when you're feeling pleasure. Now, when we receive attention and affirmation through these different uh, notifications, on the brain level, dopamine is released and it feels amazing. And there is this cycle that is created between that squirt on your brain of dopamine and the notification in your phone, and so we'll keep coming back. And some of us even get these like phantom vibrations and phantom notifications, and we keep checking. There's something more there if there's a psychology to it. We want to be noticed, and the more we comment, post, and all of these other forms of engagement, it's meant to lead to more notifications and more dopamine. This is a cycle that we get caught in. Now, some have pointed out the issue on social media with posting something in support of a movement or a cause, which can be really good and can inform people, but simply stopping there. And the issue they highlight is that it may not change much outside of informing people, but it can very easily become a form of virtue signaling. You're posting something, and you feel like you've done your part. People will like it, they'll comment it, yeah, I'm with you, I agree with you, but that's it. That's all you've done. And if you stop there, it's limited, but not just that. You can easily start posting in order to appear good, to appear kind or just or generous. Now the trouble, of course, is that it's hard to discern other people's motives for posting. And I don't actually think it's our job to figure out what someone else's motives is. Our task as followers of Jesus is not to do that, but actually to do the hard work of discerning what are my motives for posting this. And that alone can be difficult. But this is the kind of thing that Jesus is getting at. That when you share or, or, or post something in order to look good, Jesus says, you're settling. You've received your reward. And as far as uh, Jesus is concerned, when we give in order to be admired, when we serve in order to be praised, we've settled. We've settled for the praise of others. And it makes me think of this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory. 
where he says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We've settled for that small reward for mud pies. Too often we settle for making mud pies. When something akin to a vacation at the sea is on offer to us. But Jesus says we also become performers that we're comparable to performers, performing for the praise of others. One scholar says, who offered this very literal translation of verse 1, writes, Watch out that you do not do your righteousness in front of others to be theater to them. And Eugene Peterson, when he paraphrases it in the message, says, Be especially careful when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. Which is why Jesus says, which is what the hypocrites do. Because the literal translation for this Greek word is hypocrites, and it's performers. You're playing games. You've settled. You want to be seen as generous, as kind, as patient, or whatever it might be, more than you want your father to see that you care about what he cares about. And when this happens, giving becomes transactional. I do this good deed, you give me respect, you give me praise. It completely removes the person in need because it becomes about you. And in fact, this word reward that Jesus uses is this word mythos. It refers to being paid in full, being paid for your wages, your service. It's like a business transaction. It's, uh, it can also uh, refer to, um, I think I have one more. Yeah, the fruit, of nat- uh, the fruit of naturally resulting from your service. And Jesus says that if you choose this way, your sole reward is the praise of others. There's no reward left from the Father. You have all the reward you're going to get now, the admiration of people. And he has shown us over and over again through his teaching, through his life, that when you come into contact with him, you begin to develop a deep concern for other people. And the affirmation of others isn't bad. It's just that that should be a byproduct and not the goal of doing good. And this is how something good, like being noticed, gets twisted in our hearts. So then Jesus offers us this other way the better way, the more authentic way, the kingdom way, the way that you start to live when you come into contact with Jesus. It says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you give to the needy, he uses a metaphor. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Meaning, give without trying to impress anyone, including yourself. That's what he's getting at. Give without trying to include, impress anybody, including yourself. There shouldn't be any internal justifying. Saying to yourself, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty generous. I care about this person. Jesus 
Frederick Dale Bruner will say, wants to liberate us from having to be impressive to anyone, including ourselves. And what's striking here is Jesus highlights in the first negative example the hypocrites who are blowing these trumpets trying to announce, hey, look at what I'm doing. And it's like an audible external thing. But now he's bringing it to this internal thing. You're not even internally motivated seeking to justify yourself. That there's no voice within you saying, man, I'm really kind here. I'm really generous. I am really just. I really get it. Neither of those should be at work. And the follower of Jesus. And so how do you give in secret? How do we do this? Well, Martin Luther, he called, uh, he used this frame, the singleness of heart. That we give in secret by having this singleness of heart. Meaning, quote, the heart is not ostentatious or desirous of gaining honor and reputation from it, but is moved to contribute freely, regardless of whether it makes an impression and wins the praise of the people, or whether everyone despises and profanes it. It's both. You're not moved by whether or not people will praise it or people will hate it. That's not the ultimate motivation for your giving. You're seeking then to be uh, unself-conscious and unself-impressed with what you're doing. When you give in secret, you are giving without trying to impress anyone, including yourself. And Jesus says to give to the needy, when he says this, he doesn't appeal to the fact that it's actually inherently good to do it. Instead, what he appeals to is God, to God, your Father, the one who sees to what God has taught his people and to God's people being faithful listeners. There's a totally different motivator there. It's not just that it's good. It's deeply relational. It's about who God is and what he's like and what he's called his people to. And yet, what Jesus will do, because he knows humanity's hearts, he knows what we struggle with, what our inclinations are, both good and bad, he will begin speaking truth into that space where things have been contested with lies. Lies that he doesn't care, that he doesn't know, that he doesn't see. Instead, he's come, Jesus, to set us free from having to impress others. And so if you read in Matthew 6, there's this theme through these three different examples, that illustrations he outlines. One, in, in Matthew 6, 4, he says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He's like, the Father sees. In Matthew 6, 6, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you when he's talking about prayer. In Matthew 6, 8, when he's still talking about prayer, he says, your Father knows what you need before you even ask. In Matthew 6, 18, when talking about fasting, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is speaking to this lie that the Father doesn't see what I'm doing. That he's both good and bad. The good things I'm doing and the bad things. He's saying, no, he does. He recognizes it. He is watching. And he actually rewards. It's not a negative thing to believe that he rewards. Your father sees you. He knows you. He knows your needs. He knows and sees the work you do very well. 
He sees you getting up early and going to bed late to serve your family, to serve your mom or your dad, your kids. He sees you giving large amounts of money to help others in our city and in our world. He sees you fighting for your marriage. He sees you working to forgive and reconcile with that person. He sees all the days that you, that you seek to be faithful to him, wondering if you should even bother, because it feels like no one ever notices. He knows you need rest, you need healing, you need work, you need help. He knows you need words of affirmation. The Father also, though, sees those things we refuse to do, when we refuse to ask for help, when we refuse to forgive. He sees the sin that we enjoy when no one is looking. He sees the good and the bad of every, and everything in between. And what Jesus wants is for us to recognize this truth so that we would live with God in mind, to live with this audience of one, to live with this singular focus. And Jesus will give us a picture, an example of this, of the singleness of heart and the Father who sees later on in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 25, Matthew 25, Jesus, he speaks of disciples being surprised at the judgment they received because they weren't aware their, uh, their actions were actually seen and directed at Jesus. This is what it says, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See, this is what happens when your heart has a singular focus. You're caught off guard by the praise of the king. You're like, when did I do that? When did I do that to you? The father sees what you do. The father sees what is done in secret. And you and I may wonder, does he? But as one guy put it that I read this week, the theater of God is in the hidden corners. He sees it. He sees what it is that you are doing on a day day basis you settle when you live for the praises of people when you can have the applause of the creator and your heavenly father you're living for the wrong audience you're playing your part in the wrong play your motives are all mixed up when you're doing it for the praise of others when you can have your father speak his words of life and praise when you give in secret with the singleness of heart, something amazing happens. And it's kind of like Jesus is saying this. When you give motivated 
to be praised by others, and you do it perhaps in a flashy way, those acts are so bright, they blind the Father, he can't even see it, so he won't praise it. But when you do it in the secret, muted by privacy, God sees it and is impressed, and he celebrates it, and he embraces you, and he applauds it, Frederick Dale Bruner says, just as a human father can see the fumbling magic trick his child tries to perform for him, so our father sees our fumbling attempts to do the tricks of modesty and anonymity. And the father is impressed. You see, we're going to try, and it will be hard, because it's hard to discern our motives. But as we seek to do this in secret, as we try to learn not to be motivated by the praise of others, but by the praise of the Father. The Father will see our fumbling attempts. And he's not this angry judge. He's a gracious Father, a good Father, better than any human Father anyone has ever had. And he is impressed. And the fruit, the naturally, uh, naturally resulting from our fumbling attempts, is the Father's greatest, greater closeness the sense of his presence, of his closeness, of his intimacy. The reward is this relationship with the Father, living in the kingdom, living in sync with the kingdom. See, the reward that Jesus is talking about is the same thing he talked about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed is. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're blessed in the sense that they're living in sync with God's kingdom. And those who aren't motivated by the praise of others when they give, but by caring for those in need and pleasing their Father, are living in sync with the kingdom of God, and so they're living in the kingdom. They are blessed. And it's not just for the future, it's actually for the now. Because heaven doesn't simply refer to time, like some, or a distant place. Our reward, living in the kingdom with our Heavenly Father, is not just about the future. It begins now. The joyful, of the, a joyful applause of the Father is available in the secret. And so, three, three maybe, I don't know, concluding thoughts that we can uh, take from this would be this. One, the goal is to give to those in need without trying to impress others, including yourself. We're not trying to impress others with this. That's not what God's people are about, so we got to give that up. Secondly, you must reject the idea that giving requires getting something in return from God or from other people. That's not what it's about. And three, your sacrifices are costly. And you must trust that the Father personally sees and will reward you. And Jesus actually is the fulfillment of all three of these. Jesus lives this out. He gave to those in need throughout his ministry. He was praised and he was maligned for it. He was called a false teacher, a drunkard, a liar. He was polarizing. And Jesus actually trusted that his father would glorify him, not he would. He didn't try to do that himself. And so in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, Father, glorify me. 
He doesn't, he doesn't actually throughout his ministry try to glorify himself. He tries to glorify his father and point to his father in all that he does. But he trusts that his father will do that as his son. Jesus lays down his life for us, and this sacrifice was great and costly. Now, you and I, we get it wrong. Our motives get twisted all the time. And the end result of that actually should be separation from God. But Jesus took all of that on the cross for us. Jesus lived out what he calls his people to live out, and he actually experienced the separation we should have experienced, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that so that you and I would never have to when we get it wrong. He experienced what it's like to be alone, to be faithful and feel unnoticed so that you and I would never have to. And on the cross, he trusted that the Heavenly Father did and did see him despite physically, emotionally, socially, everything suggested that God was not near, that God did not see. He trusted his Father in the secret place. And therefore, Scripture says the Father has elevated him above every name, that at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The Lamb is worthy of our praise. And the call that Jesus has for anyone who will hear is that you can have this life too if you come to me. It doesn't matter how many times you've gotten it wrong. You can have this life if you come to me. And that's one of the things we celebrate in communion. Communion. 